Hi, everybody. I'm here with Dr. Russell Warren. He is the Associate Professor of Psychology at Utah Valley University and author of the book Statistics for the Social Sciences, a General Linear Model Approach. I believe that's a pop-up book. And he recently published a research study entitled What Do Undergraduates Learn About Human Intelligence and Analysis? of introductory psychology textbooks, and it's twitter.com forward slash Russ, R-U-S-S, Warren, W-A-R-N-E. Dr. Warren, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for chatting with me. It's a great study, very, very interesting and readable, and we'll put a link to it below. Uh, My particular interest is, uh, I think, as somebody who's really drawn to empiricism, one of the things that psychology really gets right is and, and is really empirical about and is really predictive and is fairly objective is the study of intelligence. So to me, that would keep, I would put that at the very center of the discipline and kind of go out from there. That's my particular prejudice, perhaps. And of course, in talking to people who've taken their intro to psych courses, as I did, of course, many years ago, they really don't seem to follow where the science is, where the data is with regards to human intelligence. So I wonder if you could just spend a few minutes uh, before we say what they got wrong. Where is intelligence uh, uh, in the pantheon of uh, psychology these days? Well, as far as being based on empirical research, I would say we probably know more about intelligence, what it is, what causes it its impact on people's everyday lives than probably any other psychological construct out there. We definitely know about more about intelligence than we do about, for example, schizophrenia or personality or depression. Uh, and what surprises me as I teach a human intelligence class and as I do research in this is there's always new things popping up that intelligence correlates with. Uh, everything from income in adulthood to to surviving um surviving until age 50 or not dying in a car accident all those things are more likely if you're smart well and it is one of these things that's so predictive about so many important issues uh, i have had dr kevin beaver on talking about the relationship between iq and criminal behavior and of course as you point out there's long-term unemployment dementia uh, quality of life success of marriage it is empirically measurable, not just through tests, but also through brain scans. It is highly predictive of very, very important things. Now, that would seem to me to be something you'd kind of want to put front and center to say, hey, it's not a made-up discipline. We've got real facts, real data, real medicine, real predictions. Yay, us! But it's like, this is like the crazy uncle in the 19th century who's kept locked in the attic because he embarrasses everyone at a, at a dinner party. Yeah, I, I can't state it any better. And I'm I'm baffled, too. And when I first came across work on human intelligence, when I was an undergraduate, and then when I, I took a class related to it as a graduate student, it, it boggled my mind. I thought, why isn't everyone talking about this? It relates to every single branch of psychology and, and far outside of psychology, too. Um, no matter what type of psychologist you are, intelligence relates to something you do. And if you're an educator, if you're a sociologist, if you're a parent, if you're a lawyer, intelligence relates to what you do. Right. Now, I would also, well, here's a possibility. We can get to some of the more politically correct landmines in a little bit. But one possibility, of course, is that psychology has traditionally offered the capacity to change, the capacity to grow, the capacity to become wiser, the capacity to expand your self-knowledge. Socrates, of course, first commandment, know thyself. And so when people hear about IQ, they get very excited because they say, wow, it's really predictive. Tell me more about what I can do to change it. And the psychologist says, "Eh, sorry, can't really do much. We know how to study it. It's like this rock bouncing down the hill. I can tell you roughly where it's going to land, but I can't do anything to stop it. And maybe it's some of the immutability of uh, intelligence that has people recoil from hearing what they see as a kind of inevitable success or inevitable failure of wide variety of swaths of people who can't do a huge amount about it. Yeah, it's really depressing that in industrialized countries, starting at roughly age seven, IQ does pretty much stabilize and your rank order in relation to your age peers doesn't change a whole lot short of things like brain injuries and, and, um, neurological illnesses. But, um, No, I agree with you. It does depress some people, but to me, I feel like that increases its explanatory power. And one of the reasons it is so useful is because it's so stable. 
On the other hand, for those people who want hope and optimism, the correlation between IQ and all these other things isn't one. There's always room for personal improvement. I was just teaching today in my human intelligence class about IQ and educational outcomes. And I said that roughly 35% of the variance in educational outcomes is due to personal malleable variables like conscientiousness and motivation. And there's still room for hope. No, not everyone will be able to master calculus, but you can compensate for a 5, 10, 15, who knows, maybe more point deficit by working hard. And so I, I don't see the high heritability or the other characteristics as being contradictory with, with what we know and what we want to be true about self-improvement. And with the hope, I think, comes a certain amount of despair, frustration, and sometimes moral castigation. So if you have one kid who's six seven and another kid who's five foot tall, and you think they can both do equally well at basketball, you're going to get kind of mad at the short kid for not succeeding as much as the tall kid. And so I think if we have this idea that anyone can be anything, rather than equality of opportunity, there's this kind of crazy equality of outcome fantasy that's there. Because if we say, well, you can be as smart as you want and you can do anything that you want, the people who fail to achieve, it's kind of hard to avoid castigating them either overtly or covertly. Uh, and that's very unfair. If they simply lack the horsepower, if they lack the brain power, we need to not in a sense forgive because there's nothing to forgive, but recognize the limitations so that we reserve our moral outrage for things that people actually have control over. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, if you start believing in the fantasy that everyone could master calculus, if they just work hard enough and and have the right teacher, then when that doesn't happen, you have to start playing the blame game. Well, it's someone's fault that my child didn't master calculus. Is it the kid's fault for not studying? Is the teacher bad? Did the school not provide the right support or, or the right textbook? But if you recognize that there are individual differences, that we don't always know what people's limits are, but that there are limits out there, then when people come up short, there's no desire to play the blame game. The question then becomes, instead of who to blame, uh, the question becomes, well, what do we do about the situation? How can we still help people coming up short? And where can we find a place for them? Right. Well, and I think it's... Um quite fascinating to think about, as you point out in, in the study. I, I promise everyone, we'll get to the content in a sec. I just want to you know, put, put the foundations out first. It's fascinating in the study, which as you say, and I'll, I'll give you a quote here, exposure to the wide spectrum of human ability is beneficial to students of all backgrounds. And a researcher stated that, quote, high ability students believe that everyone is like them. They are often shocked when told about the full range of ability and even more shocked when they encounter it in the real world. And that's important, of course, because a lot of psychologists who become professionals are treating the general public, they're going to encounter some people who aren't at their intellectual level. In fact, a lot of the people who are going to end up with psychological difficulties or challenges recovering from trauma or so on are going to be of lower intellectual ability. And if people don't fully understand how immutable some of this stuff is, it's hard to imagine how they can be uh, effective uh, healers of the situation. No, I have in my department, we're combined with a social work program here. And I love it when social work students take my human intelligence class because I tell them long-term unemployment, uh, long-term medical problems, uh, divorce, all these things that social workers help people move through, drug addiction, are more common in low IQ groups. If you think everyone's as bright as you, you're going to get frustrated when they don't they don't finish the tasks you gave them to do. They don't do their therapy homework when they stumble or when they forget to show up at their job. Or I said, but if you understand, okay, I'm dealing with someone who on average is going to be 10, 15, 20 points lower than me. I need to make sure that my instructions are clear. They're unambiguous and a reminder could help. And I think my social work students are more effective because of that. And it's true no matter what career fields my students go into. Um, very few of us in the world um, associate with a random sample of humanity. We already know that, that in industrialized countries, at least, there's a sortative mating where, um, where sexual partners' IQ scores are about 
correlate about 0.4. Well, there's also assortative friending where most people make friends at a similar intellectual level as them. And if you don't realize it, then you think that everyone's like you, even though nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> well, and of course, the people who end up writing psych textbooks are all surrounded by brilliant people who, in a very real sense, can be just about anything they want to be. And it's like we've taken that fantasy of very high ability and said, well, you know, I have a naturally gorgeous singing voice. Anyone can end up singing at the Met. And it's like, well, uh, have you been to karaoke night? It's really not the way it plays out in the real world. And there is a kind of solipsism, almost, I would say, a narcissism in projecting one's own capacities onto the world as a whole. And um, I mean, I guess it gives some kind of relief and, and it allows you to avoid certain uncomfortable truths about stratification within society. But I'm not sure that it really helps us understand the world as it stands. I would agree. And it, I feel like I feel like I'm dabbling in the territory that Charles Murray talks about in Coming Apart, where mm -hmm. people are associating more and more and more, at least in the U.S., with other people like them, not just on IQ level, but in tastes of music and TV shows and and um, religious behavior, etc. And I'm always in favor of things that get people interacting with people not like them. And mm. sometimes that means a different culture. Sometimes it means a different language. Sometimes it means a different IQ level. And I'm okay with that. Well, that is a fascinating study that, that he's put out. And, and one of the basic theses, as you know, is that the um, elites are kind of strip mining intelligence everywhere they can get their hands on it from small towns to foreign countries, the third world, you know, invite over all of the high IQ people from the third world and then wonder why the third world doesn't seem to improve. Huh? You know, it's, it was bad enough to strip mine diamonds from Africa, but strip mining high IQ people from the third world, not a very good strategy for. And, and so we're scooping up all of these high IQ people from everywhere we can lay our hands on. And then, of course, people get shocked when the gap between rich and poor uh, tends to widen. And it's like, well, we're basically creating this fortification of academia and high finance and and uh, media and so on. And we're kind of behind these walled enclosures while not having, I think, enough sympathy for what we need to do to help people uh, who are not like ourselves. No, I agree. And it's funny you mentioned the, the immigration point. Uh, I had a student in my human intelligence class for their final project, they can write a paper about um, one of, I have a list of over a hundred topics they can choose from. And, um, the student here in the U S she was diehard Bernie Sanders supporter. <laughs> and she found herself able to argue for open borders or against open borders based on the same data. And she found herself shocked that she could make a good ethical argument that we should allow high IQ people to stay in their home countries and build up the institutions, the educational and scientific and cultural institutions of their home nations, instead of importing them here and, and building ours up too. And yet she can make the exact reverse argument that, that showed her, wow, scientific facts are value neutral. <laughs> and what I do with them is very value laden. And so it, it's a very interesting topic to discuss because you always end up finding yourself in situations like that where the same information can support multiple viewpoints. Well, if you care about the individual, you want to give them access to a high IQ society. If you care about the society they came from, the other argument could be made. So it's one of these individualistic versus collectivistic arguments. That's so exactly how she saw it. So let's talk about what's been going on in the textbooks. And mm -hmm. this to me, again, I just be completely honest about my frustration, uh, which is that the science, I mean, as you know, um, that what's going on in China in terms of intelligence research, research is like, it's like the race to the moon in the 60s, the amount of engineering and computational. They got 4,000 people in one institution, they got 100 supercomputers sequencing genes to try and find genes for intelligence. And I've had some researchers say that within half a decade of being able to pop IQ 200 babies out of a test tube, it's some science fiction stuff that's going on over there. So at a time when, you know, psychology starting out with the Freudian stuff, which is very uh, allegorical based and, and no scientific proof for it. Now we finally have the capacity to explore the physical substructure of intelligence at the same time as the tests are getting better and better. Man, this should be, and it's becoming smaller and smaller, the allocation of space in these textbooks. So, so you point out here, this is a study from Griggs in 2014, analyzes textbook coverage, course syllabi, 
finding that discussions on intelligence were a smaller percentage of textbook space in the 21st century than the 1980s, dropping from 6% of textbook space to 4%. And I just want to point out, not only is that a huge reduction, but what's there is not very accurate. And that, to me, is uh, deeply shocking, although we can get into the reasons why. Yeah, and my student and I, we knew we find some errors because psychology is so broad. It's impossible for one or two authors to be an expert in everything. Um, I, I have my hands full just trying to be an expert in intelligence plus methodology because I'm a quantitative psychologist. I couldn't imagine writing a, an introductory textbook. But we were surprised that so much of it is that they that these authors were saying was so easily disprovable. Uh, almost eighty percent of the books had at least one factual error, and we were extremely conservative with our with our standards because we didn't want to just say, "Oh, here's who disagrees with us." Well, so <laughs> what? Uh, and to still find, even after we were being very conservative throwing out any supposed errors if there was any uh, ambiguity or any doubt we still got 80 percent of books with an error so that that was very disappointing given how important the topic is yeah the basic go-to position seems to be just ask dr godfredson and you're set uh, if you haven't asked dr godfredson uh, who's been on this show as a great uh, researcher then uh, then you're going to go off base and even mm-hmm. as you point out organizational psychology textbooks uh, intelligence was discussed in an average of 3.89 paragraphs. I'm just going to pause and wipe the tears of like shock and horror from my face. Despite the fact that intelligence is one of the most powerful predictors of job performance, especially in more complex jobs. So in, yeah. in, in, in psychology has a huge amount to add to you can have an HR department or you can just have an IQ test. You can have a whole battery of interviews or you can just have an IQ test. And the IQ test, I think, does better than just about anything else if you can only take one metric. And so in a place where they're talking about organizational psychology and how to get the best people to work, there's almost nothing on the one measure that works the best. I know. When we discovered that article in our literature review, I thought, did the 35 years of Schmidt and Hunter's meta-analyses never happen? Did I just dream one of the most important meta-analyses in the history of psychology up because no one's talking about it. Okay, to explain that a little bit for the audience, please. So Schmidt and Hunter, they did their first meta-analysis on the relationship between cognitive ability and job performance in the late 1970s. It's literally one of the first meta-analyses ever published. And then as new research came out as their... Um, methods became more sophisticated as meta-analysis developed. They updated it periodically off and on for about 30 years. And it shows that among the single predictors, um, that IQ is the best predictor of job performance and that the predictive ability increases as jobs get more complex. So IQ is a terrible predictor of whether someone's going to be a good ditch digger. It's an extremely good predictor of whether someone's going to be a good physician. Um, And I mean, we're talking about hundreds of studies, thousands of studies uh, with millions of people total and organizational psychology books or uh, organizational behavior books just pretend it didn't exist, even though it's probably the most impressive monument of work in the history of meta-analysis. Funny how a book that could be conceived as aiming at the uh, HR departments is not does not embrace data that might put the HR departments out of jobs. Uh, that's just <laughs> one possibility. Now, some of the uh, – I want to talk a little bit about uh, – I didn't realize that uh, Linda Godfordson, Dr. Godfordson, had put together this whole logical uh, fallacy. Uh, because, of course, where IQ is mentioned – there is um, some overselling and uh, some underselling. There's overselling of its possibilities and underselling of its accuracy, p- particularly across groups. So um, what were the major fallacies that you found in the textbooks from people who started talking about IQ? One of the most common fallacies was what Gottfriedson calls the marble collection fallacy. And people who believe in this say, oh, Intelligence is just whatever mental tasks I happen to group together and put on my test. And so if you create an IQ test with 10 tasks on it, and I create an IQ IQ test with eight tasks, and they're not the exact same set of tasks, 
then people who believe in this fallacy say, well, you can't agree on what intelligence is. You don't know what it is. Um, what you call intelligence and what I call intelligence are completely different things. And we're talking apples and oranges. And that's just not true. Um, every, um, every set of cognitive tasks that require some sort of mental work, reasoning, decision-making, they all correlate with, with each other, some better than others, but they all have this piece of shared variance, which is about 45 to 50% of the variance among scores. And that's what intelligence is. It's that shared ability that helps you do a wide variety of cognitive tasks. And regardless of the collection that you use to measure it, you're still going to measure it. There's something, this is the G factor, that, that there's something yeah. underlying every cognitive task. And it also bothers me, I can't remember which fallacy this is, uh, Dr. Warren, but it is when they were talking about, well, you know, it, it's upper white, middle class. I always use white, even though Asians, East Asians score higher IQs. It's always black versus white. It's always this race baiting stuff. When, of course, it is uh, East Asians score higher, as to ask Jews. But they say, well, you need to have this vocabulary. And if you haven't been exposed to this vocabulary, but to me, it's like, well, if you like to read, which is a sign of intelligence, you're just going to absorb this vocabulary anyway. I mean, I grew up poor. A lot of the kids in my neighborhood seem to have a great game of put a bucket on your head and run into a wall while I was picking up books to read, right? So it is just one of these. It's not like, well, you never got exposed mysteriously to all of this language. It's like if you are uh, hungry for it, particularly in the age of the internet, the wife, of course, just went to the public library. You're just going to be thirsty for books and you're just going to expand your vocabulary based upon that, which is, again, another mark of intelligence. Yes, no, I, I agree. And, you know, there's people who say, oh, well, the test must be uh, prima facie bias against against ethnic minorities or, or different linguistic groups. And that's not entirely untrue. They take a they take a trite truism and turn it into a profound insight. It is true that you can't give a test in English to someone who does not speak English. That's that's a trite fact. No one disputes that. But there are a wide variety of tests that are either easily translatable. I think of digit span, which just requires um, numbers, being able to say numbers. And in particular, if you say them backwards, that's more G-loaded, right? So, yes, yes, uh, so exactly. can somebody repeat eight numbers backwards? That's not culturally specific. Yeah. And, and even then, there are tests that have nonverbal versions of digit span where you have a set of blocks in front of someone and you touch them in a certain order and they have to repeat the pattern, repeat it backwards. Uh, and then we also have other tests that use universal human um, cultural universals like up, down, um, baby, adult. These are concepts that exist in every culture in the world. And you can create intelligence test items based on them that work all over the world. And so when people say just outright, oh, well, intelligence tests are biased against non-white groups, they're biased against non-middle class groups, it's an oversimplification. It takes that trite truism and tries to pretend that it means much more than it does. Well, and of course, if uh, they're so biased against non-whites, then why do the East Asians score higher on IQ tests? I mean, that's Which one of these basic that things. Which undergraduates point out every semester. Yeah, it's like, I mean, for this, like, if it's some sort of white supremacy thing, why on earth would whites design a test where you end up in the middle? Like, that's not a very good kind of, I want to get to the top of the mountain, so I'm going to stop right at base camp and just stay there. So, And just let all the Chinese and Japanese and Korean and East European Jewish people pass me up. Well, and there's this thing, too, where you, you can see, and there's lots of examples of this, and I just want to caution people about don't take online IQ tests very seriously. I mean, they're not the end of the world, but it needs to be administered by a professional. There's a variety of tests. It needs to be scored. Like, it's a big deal. And don't just say, well, I went through this 20-minute test online. I know my IQ. You kind of don't. But uh, there are, of course, the pattern recognition. You know, this shape follows this shape, and it starts to look like some Jungian Mandela centerfolds or whatever, and it can be tough to manipulate. But again, it's measuring something quite substantial that's going on in your brain. Oh, yes. Yes. And it, it's not just this made-up score. It's not this fiction. It's not something that was created just so that the test creators can have some data. The, the fact that IQ tests correlate with so many things that they were never intended to correlate with, 
I think of things like um, brain size, white matter, connectivity. Um, you mentioned before EEG with brain waves or certain patterns that are correlated with intelligence. Uh, no one is purposely forcing the test to do this. There must be something real if it correlates with these biological substrates in the brain. Right. And and that is where, uh, if it's predictive and it's describing things that are occurring in the brain, to toss it out. And also, reaction time is correlated to G as well. And mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I cannot think of a conceivable way in which reaction time is culturally specific. You know, catch the ball. <laughs> you know, you got it. You know, you strike like a cobra. Uh, and uh, I just... There's just no way that it can all be arbitrary, but it is, of course, a way of helping people over the emotional difficulty of the fact that uh, G-loaded tests uh, produce, on aggregate, different results among different groups, ethnicities, a little bit between males and females, and people like the idea that we can tweak the environment and have this all become the same so that we can get the kind of equality that we want, not just equality of opportunity, but more equality of outcome between groups. So it is a very, and I love, I mean, I felt this temptation as I'm sure everyone has. Can I find that magic button that is going to uh, switch everyone into being able to do the same on these Mm -hmm. tests, different groups, different races, different genders, and so on. It is such a, a thirsty thing that society desperately wants that it is understandable, though, and not think particularly honorable to try and find a way to achieve it. Yeah. And, and I, I think not just group differences, but individual differences, people want to equalize things, not just across groups, but across individuals. I, I would love to live in a world where that's possible. And I think there are th- possibilities of reducing gaps among people, but the the research shows that intelligence is so highly genetic and it has to be at least partially biological that I'm skeptical about whether we can ever eliminate individual differences completely. Well, without tinkering with the base code. Uh, that's, yes, uh, you yes. know, if you want to rewrite the operating system, you can do quite a lot. But that's uh, challenging for people uh, to think of conceptually. And um, let's talk about the limitations of raising IQ, because I seem to have gone through a whole series of like, hey, play Mozart, you know, all of the nonsense that's gone on about this stuff, or we've got Head Start, so we can close the the sort of uh, East Asian and black gap in, in performance and achievement and so on. This has been, to me, a massive waste of resources, has promoted uh, a lot of division within society and has not allowed us to focus, uh, and I'll toss a couple of ideas about ways in which this could be closed later on, But it has been to me really frustrating because uh, psychologists, even in these textbooks, dangle out, well, we know how to raise IQ in individuals in high quality environments. So if we give the inner city kids, uh, you know, a new baseball diamond, a computer lab and an Olympic swimming pool, they'll all turn into geniuses and what, $100 billion plus on, on Head Start for very short gains that fade very quickly. So what is the carrot that, that they're dangling out with IQ and environment? Uh, well, the most common example we saw was was this implication of what you said that, oh, psychologists know how to raise IQ in people who already have high quality environments. No one questions the fact that we know how to lower IQ in some ways. Just start introducing lead to a child's environment. You'll get <laughs> right. an IQ drop there. Um, subject someone to repeated brain injuries or have the their oxygen supply and their brain cut off. Okay, we know how to lower IQ, um, iodine deficiency. But in the United States, even among um, low-income individuals in the United States, a lot of those things are extremely rare. Um the Centers for Disease Control's goal is to eliminate blood lead levels that are 10 micrograms per deciliter or higher. And in the last data that I have, I think it's from about 2015, literally 99.5% of children in the U.S. have a blood lead level below that. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've reached pretty much the gains in the U.S. of the IQ increases we can get from fixing lead poisoning. And for a lot of other things with malnutrition or iodine deficiency, we've pretty much reached the limits of those gains, even among the poor, at least in the U.S. Now, in other countries, we still have gains that we can make. Um, you know, if you really want to make the world smarter, donate to a charity that provides iodine to, to children in deficient countries like Bangladesh or, or Ethiopia. Um, but a lot of these textbook authors were saying that things like educational television or Head Start 
or in infancy, uh, um, and it poly, um, unsaturated fat enriched, um, enriched diet can, can increase intelligence later. And unfortunately there any IQ gains for these people who already live in an industrialized country are, are fleeting. And within a couple of years that the gains are completely wiped out. That is, I just want to say unbelievably frustrating. It's sort of like, oh, Hey, we know how to make people taller and you gain six inches in height. And then you just kind of shrink like an elderly Greek woman. Like you just turn into a little, like you just compress down like a sagging xylophone or something uh, or accordion. And that to me is really because the initial gains give you great enthusiasm for, yay, it's going to work. And we're going to close these gaps and, you know, rescue communities that are, are challenged in an increasingly complex society. And it's like, uh, and then, so how is that? I mean, they, they become good at taking tests. I mean, why do the scores go up and then decline in your view? Well, for things like compensatory education, like Head Start or, or universal preschool, they probably do go up because of cognitive stimulation and because in some of these programs, they actually teach kids the skills that IQ tests then later use. Mm. And, and occasionally, sometimes you see them use practice problems from IQ tests as exercises and stuff. Now, those, those are some of the extreme ones. Um, but I think some of it is just the fact that once people in an experimental group are released into the environment, the the cognitive stimulation goes away, and before long, their their um, age peers in the control group catch up with them. Mm. And intelligence isn't the only thing like this. Um, John Protzko pointed out to me that. Um, this often happens, for example, when you're trying to lose weight. Yeah, when you're exercising and eating right every day, your weight goes down and you're thinner and you're feeling good. And then when you get off the diet, your weight starts going back up again. You have fade out. And so fade out might just be a, a part of being human. <laughs> right. And no, it's, it's sort of like when my, when my daughter was little, um, she was not great at sharing. And I would, I would have this temptation – I'll give you a piece of candy if you share. And it's like, no, that's that's a terrible it's, that's a terrible way of incenting someone. And I had to kind of bite my tongue to not do it. It's like if you pay your kid 50 bucks a piano lesson to go learn piano, look how enthusiastic they are, but it can't last once that incentive is, is withdrawn if they don't have the native desire. Yeah. And so I don't think fade out is unique to intelligence interventions, but it sure is a place where we notice it a lot and we really get frustrated because – we, we do get very enthusiastic about gains. And then when, for example, in Head Start, I think of the Department of Health and Human Services randomized control study, all gains from Head Start had wiped out by the third grade. Yeah. And this country spends hundreds of millions of dollars on Head Start every year for transitory gains. Oh, don't even get me started on the opportunity costs of those money and those right. resources, uh, because what else could be done to help would be almost beyond uh, beyond belief. And so where does it stand now? Because there's a little tantalizing thing in here for those of us, I guess, since I mean, since I read the bell curve in the 90s, those of us have been tracking uh, ethnic IQ differences. Uh, I have heard it's it's narrowing between blacks and whites in America. I've heard that it's not that it's, you know, the more G loaded tests are not really responding that much. Where does it stand at the moment in in the great closure that everybody wants to try and achieve? That's one of the big unsettled controversies, I believe, among experts in intelligence research. There are some who say we've gone from a 15-point gap between white and black Americans to a 10-point gap. There's other people who say, nope, it's still 15 points. I'm agnostic about the issue, but I have noticed in my research since uh, I'm an educational psychologist that in academic achievement tests that measure a defined curriculum, the gaps tend to be lower and they tend to be narrower. Mm -hmm. But in abstract reasoning tests uh, that you find on a Wexler test or Stanford Binet or, or the Ravens progressive matrices, those gaps seem to be wider. And so... I Wait, sort of not the, wider than they were in the past, but wider oh, than the more me. specific. Yes, yes, yes. Thanks okay. thanks for clarifying that. They're about the same as they were in the past, but wider than what we see on educational tests. And so uh, I, I've done a study where I examined the racial and ethnic groups on advanced placement tests here in the United States, um, which are for 
high school students taking an introductory college-level class through their high school. And the more G-loaded tests have wider score gaps between different racial and ethnic groups, and the less G-loaded ones have narrower gaps. And so, um, and those are educational tests, but I want to say that at most one or two out of over 30 tests had a full 15 IQ point gap between groups because they're educational tests. Some of them had much, much smaller gaps. And um, so I think that the test you use partially determines whether you think the, the black, white American IQ gap is closing. And I'm, I'm not convinced that it's still 15 points, but I'm not convinced that it's only 10 Right. right. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, listen, I mean, this is where the limits are of where the science uh, is right now. Now, as you point out in some of these textbooks, they uh, come up with the, I don't know, let me let me not prejudice the witness here. So I'll, I'll put it in a more neutral term than it appeared in my head, which is they say, well, race is a social construct. Race is, is a made up a thing. And, uh, you know, what happens with skin color and, and, and hair type and so on uh, has no relationship to anything. Uh, it's just same same person, different coat of paint kind of thing. And that to me is a challenging hypothesis to make. And from what I understand, which is not, of course, at an expert level of sort of biology and genetics, it, it has some challenges. Wh where do you stand with the question of the social construct? And of course, the reason why it's so important, just for the listeners, is that if race is a social construct, then uh, the discrepancies are due to environment and prejudice and uh, the the stereotype fallacy, which we can get to. Uh, so wh where are you uh, in your understanding of race, genetics, and, and um, bio uh, social constructs? No, like you, I'm not. I'm not an expert in genetics. Uh, I did get my bachelor's in psychology and my doctorate in educational psychology, um, and so I've. I'm sort of self-taught with genetics. So anything I say, I'm borrowing from other people who are much more brilliant than I am on this issue. But if you see racial groups as separate, discrete categories that are basically nominal variables, then no, I don't believe in that. Um, just the existence of people who, who have uh, multiracial multi heritage, um, the fact that there are some groups um, that don't fall cleanly into one major racial classification or another. Okay, I don't believe in discrete separate groups that you can perfectly classify everyone into. That's a red herring, though. Um, you know, to, to say that race doesn't exist and then use that definition of race. Well, that's a straw man to be, to, to disprove that. Um, what I tell my undergraduates is that racial groups are like gigantic extended families. Mm -hmm. Um, biologists sometimes use the term breeding populations, but for psychology students who care about people, they like the label extended families more. And the idea is that People who are descended from Europeans are members of this gigantic extended European family. That's millions upon millions of people. And people who are ex who are descended from Africans are in this big extended family. And then I say, you know what? From time to time, some of these families have mixed a little bit. There are some people today who are descended from multiple families. But just like your immediate family or just like your extended family of your cousins and your grandparents – um, you are more similar to people inside your family. And so I tell them, you know, think of these as fuzzy groups, fuzzy families with these boundaries that aren't really clear, where the people within them are a little bit more genetically similar to they are to people outside. And that, I feel, is a way that my undergrads grasp it without oversimplifying the issue or without denying a construct that does have um, real genetic meaning. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and to me, the idea that our most expensive organ, the brain, would be immune from biological pressures, from environmental pressures, seems, well, I don't know, extraordinary uh, theses require extraordinary proof, and I've yet to see that uh, manifest, which, again, just an amateur guy in a studio, so everyone, you know, take everything I'm saying, of course, with a with a grain of salt. Socioeconomic status is another one of these things that it's, it's almost like this stuff is designed to throw people off. Because, of mm -hmm. course, people say, well, the rich, the kids of rich parents, 
They do really well in school. And it must be because the rich parents have all of these resources and these computers and these books and stimulating conversation and they don't let them watch cartoons, whatever it is, right? And no Candy Crush for the kids. So it is very tempting to go down that path. And it's almost kind of like a Marxist path to say, well, uh, the rich stay rich because they can provide the resources to their children. The poor stay poor because they lack the resources. And of course, the whole point of the welfare state was supposed to fix that, which it really hasn't done. In fact, I think it's hardened and widened a lot of these gaps for reasons uh, we can perhaps talk about another time. What is the big temptation, the, the path deep into the woods where you get lost about following socioeconomic status as the explanation, sole explanation for high-performing kids? Well, to be fair, it's not a bad hypothesis. We have research going back 100 years showing that, that there is a correlation both in children and adults between socioeconomic status and IQ scores. And even in adults, there is a slight but positive correlation between childhood socioeconomic status and adult IQ. And so it's not like these people are just making these things up or, or pulling them out of thin air. But what most people don't realize is um, an insight that Carl Pearson had in 1903, that a lot of variables that look environmental are actually genetically caused. Hmm. Unless you're adopted by non-biological relatives, no one plucks you out of your environment and puts you into a new socioeconomic status. And then by the time, if you are adopted, by the time you, you grow up, then your adult earning power and your socioeconomic status as an adult is very much driven by you. And so people think that socioeconomic status is this magical variable that operates independently and you're either born with it or you're not. And the reality is that if you're raised by biological relatives, then the genes that make them smarter and more likely to own books or watch public television or earn a lot of money or stay in school, are those genes are creating your socioeconomic environment. And then those genes are being passed on to the child too. And so ironically, the child's genes are causing the socioeconomic status that their parents are creating even before the child's born. And the only exception is people who are adopted by non-biological relatives. But by the time they reach adulthood, their socioeconomic status is very much driven by things like IQ and personality traits, which are partially genetic. And so I think people who think, oh, socioeconomic status, that's the big key to why we see the correlation between SES and IQ are ignoring the fact that except for adopted children who are still living at home, your socioeconomic status is partially genetic and it doesn't just originate in the environment. And most environmental variables for most people are at least partially genetic. Well, and of course, we everybody's aware of the kids of rich parents who don't do well and the kids of very poor parents oh, yeah. who magically manage to burrow the way up through all of this uh, stuff and, and achieve uh, great goals and, and great things. And that, of course, goes against the entire environmental explanation. And of course, there are ways of teasing it out, particularly, of oh. course, the very rare but still statistically relevant twins raised apart uh, studies uh, where, of course, you know, people who are basically identif uh, identical uh, from a genetic standpoint, not counting the complexity of epigenetics, but people who are uh, genetically identical raised in very different environments. And uh, my understanding of the studies are that if you want to figure out the IQ of uh, the kid with a very significant degree of accuracy, just look at the biological parents. That if you have low IQ uh, kids adopted into high IQ families, the low IQ kids will tend to be lower. And, and and vice versa, if you have high IQ kids adopted into low IQ families, the kids will tend to, you know, it doesn't, you know, it's it's height, you know, so to speak, right? Again, you know you know how to shorten people by giving them less food and, and all of that, but to make them taller, well, you just end up getting wider if you get more food. And so there's ways that, and this has been going on for, an encouraging, if you like, facts, a depressing, if you like, the spread of facts amount of time that this stuff has been teased out to the point where the, the most recent data that I've seen is by the time you're 18, 80% of your IQ is genetic, 80 plus percent. I don't know if anyone's gone how far up the 80s, but that's quite a lot. And uh, again, that does give us room for hope, but not for grandiosity. 
Yeah, I agree. Heritability is not 100%. And we have more wiggle room in being able to raise IQ in children. Although once they hit adulthood, we often see fade out. Um, the heritability results do, do sometimes hide the fact that in adoption studies, we do sometimes see a mean increase um, between adopted, uh, adopted siblings um, who are adopted into high SCS environments and their biological siblings who aren't. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that the correlation stays higher um, between the adopted child's IQ and their biological parents than it is um, with their um, adopted parents. And so it's complex. It's uh, there's still a lot we don't know. We know a lot of the broad principles, but it's the narrow, exact numbers. Here's exactly how much hope you're allowed to have <laughs> that we don't that we don't have. But um, I was just surprised in how many of these textbooks where they were even getting the broad principle wrong. Um, oh, let, so let's sorry to interrupt. Let, let's jump into this as, as the last point. I really, really appreciate your time, but oh. Again, to express a little personal frustration, uh, it, it, it's like, well, IQ doesn't give us the result we want. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to bend over and pull in another entire set of intelligence metrics out of some place where the sun don't shine. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to put EQ out there. We're going to put multiple intelligences. We're going to create these massive flowcharts that, you know, as you point out, Gardner, he's, you got, there's a quote here, Gardner never explained how to measure these intelligences, nor has he embarked on any sort of systematic research program to gather data to test his theory. And I am a little concerned, given how credible G-loaded tests are, IQ tests are in prediction of outcomes and even biological substrata, if there's all of this other stuff that's talked out, oh, IQ doesn't give us the results we want for, for hope and egalitarianism between groups, so we're going to have this other set of tests. And they were put forward front and center without a lot of pullback or pushback on the lack of empirical support. Uh, Oh, definitely. And and having gotten my PhD in a college of education, it's amazing how much people, especially in the educational establishment, I've been shocked by the lengths that people will go to not talk about intelligence and uh, especially in the education system. I think that's one of the reasons why Gardner's theory is so popular with teachers, um, that it, it does give them hope, and they think, well, if a kid's not smart one way, they might be smart in another. Um, I tell my students that there's more evidence that elves exist than there is for Gardner's multiple intelligences theory. Um, and I'm sure it would even mismeasure the IQ of elves. But a yeah, oh, little dig there for no particular I purpose. Will, I will get that quote into a peer-reviewed journal sometime. If I can get a cartoon in a in a journal, I can get that quote in a journal one day. You need to bury it with the first letter in each paragraph so that the very astute people will get it. <laughs> um, but no, it is that, that humans naturally have – humans naturally – have a tendency to believe that things supporting what they want to be true as being stronger than things that contradict their beliefs. Mm -hmm. This is why you get religious fundamentalism. This is why you get um, scientists who, and politicians who will cling to a theory or a policy long after it's served its, its use. That old quote that science, uh, uh, science progresses along a line of graves. Yeah, yeah, or one funeral at a time, yeah. Um, And so I think that, for example, in the education system, you have to want to believe you can make a difference to be a teacher. You have to believe that teaching in the environment matters. Otherwise, what on earth are we doing here in a classroom? Um, And so I believe that that's why there's been a lot of ignoring of, of G theory, just because people have mistakenly believed that intelligence means that we can't do anything or we can't improve or we can't teach. And nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, I think it's a lot of wishful thinking that people create theories that have little evidence. And, and Gardner's, uh, Gardner's the worst offender um, in that respect. At least some of the other theorists have done empirical research. Gardner's original book, Frames of Mind, was published the year I was born. Okay. 
I think by the time a book's over 30 years old, that time's up. You have to either present <laughs> some data by now or we're allowed to ignore your theory. Okay, I think 30 years, the statute of limitations is up. We're done. Okay, I don't want to hear about Gardner's theory anymore. Right. Well, and my particular thought as well is that if we accept limitations in IQ, we can start to explore the best way to educate people without assuming we can raise their IQ. And to me, it's like if, if there's some super strong guy in the village who can like rip out trees with his bare hands and the fantasy is because just genetically like Jean Valjean kind of strength, right? Then if we think everyone can be like him, we're not going to invent machinery to do it because we're, oh, everyone's just going to work out and everyone's going to have the same ability. And once we recognize that this guy is a freak, like he's just like a weirdly muscled freak and other people are never going to be able to do what he does, then we can start saying, okay, well, what's the machinery we need? You know, not everyone is going to be able to lift up those pallets, so let's invent a forklift. And to me, the forklift is, you know, critical thinking, ration, reason and evidence, philosophy. It's not like, like a society that's trying to understand the world that doesn't have the scientific method isn't going to gain any real traction. The society which does is going to make, gain enormous traction, as we've seen just over the last couple of hundred years. People forget science is only a couple of hundred years old and it's in its modern functional form. And so if we accept these limitations, we can really begin to explore mental constructs that can give the intelligence that people have as much leverage as humanly possible, rather than imagining there's some magic potion that turns everybody into the He-Man master of the universe. And that, to me, would be the unlocking of human potential that right now is sealed up in a kind of fantasy. Yeah, and the ironic thing is we have invented these technologies that can improve people's um, intellectual performance and, and to sometimes even reduce some of those inequalities. What do you think a calculator is? What do you think spell check is? Uh, you know, what do you think a spreadsheet is? These are things that have reduced the need for tedious or difficult um, pr mental procedures and make things better and easier for everyone. And, you know, to, to pretend that, well, we all have to be able to do integral calculus in our head in order for the world to be fair is ridiculous. No, we can, we can invent computer programs to do these things or heaven forbid we hire someone who can do calculus and so that you don't have to. Right. Uh, and so it's ironic that we're so obsessed in Western culture with equalizing things when we don't have to be equal to reap the benefits of the things that some people can do and other people can't. Yeah, let Mathematica do the work while you tread the high halls of conceptual thought. Well, thank you so much. Of course, this um, conversation has been great for me. I know the listeners will love it. Um, I wanted to remind people that if this is your taste, you know, this is not book four of Fifty Shades of Grey. It's called Statistics for the Social Sciences, a General Linear Model Approach. And the research study is called What Do Undergraduates Learn About Human Intelligence and Analysis? of introductory psychology textbooks. We'll put the link to both of those below. The Twitter handle is twitter.com forward slash Russ Warren. That's W-A-R-N-E. Really, really appreciate the conversation. Thanks for your time, and I hope we can do it again. Thanks for having me. Talk to you later.